Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. Gu Kailai was addicted to power and status, and she used her sex appeal to win favors from men. Favors which led her from being the child of a persecuted communist during the Cultural Revolution, via a career as a successful lawyer in her own right, to becoming the second wife of Bo Shilai, son of communist hotshot Bo Bo, and one of the CCP's princelings. That put Gu Kailai in the running for the job of First Lady of China. But that part of the fairy tale. Would never come to pass. Borshilai played with the flowers and trampled the grass, as the Chinese saying goes. This means he cheated on his wife. But his wife, Gu Kailai, was no shrinking violet herself. In fact, to use another expression, she was a red apricot, as in the red apricot tree leans over the garden wall. She cheated on her husband. You've really got to love these Chinese sayings. Anyway, while Bo Shilai was mayor of Dalian, the city in the northeast of China, his incredibly privileged wife Gu Kailai spent her time shuttling between the Middle Kingdom and Bournemouth, the humble seaside town on the south coast of England, a place which I happen to know pretty well. She laundered money there and got her son into Harrow, then Oxford, then Harvard. This was quite the privileged family. Was quite the privileged family. That is, the other character in this triangle of doom is Neil Hayward, who was a wealthy British businessman living long term in China, meeting important people and helping them strike deals. He met Gu Kailai and became her fixer, helping to get money into the UK and into property. They got close. She became his daughter's godmother, and it seems that Neil had a genuine affection for this red apricot. It was a weakness. That would cost him his life. In 2007, Boi Bo, the respected elder communist and father of Bo Shilai, died, and Bo Shilai's political opponents saw an opportunity. They had him cast out to the central Chinese megacity of Chongqing, in the hope that distance might also mean irrelevance. But just as Bo had thrived in Dalian, so too he thrived in Chongqing. He kept up the womanizing, the political rallies, and the gangsterism that had served him so well up to that point, confiscating money from people he labeled corrupt. The New York Times reported that he ran covert surveillance, listening into political rivals' phone calls, and he got on well with the local police chief Wang Lijun, who was no less egocentric and ruthless than Bo himself. Wang Lijun oversaw torture and organ harvesting, and while he kept that darker side hidden, he had a TV drama showcasing his criminal takedowns called "Iron-Blooded Police Spirit." Bo Shilai and Wang Lijun were the perfect match in China's Wild West. But by now, Gu Kailai was spiraling into paranoia. She was convinced they were on a hit list, 
And to be fair, maybe they were. The circles they moved in were incredibly shady, and it's thought that Neil Hayward was, if not a spy for the British, then possibly an informant. Things came to a head when Neil wanted money he felt he was owed, and Gukai Lai refused, and she cut him off. Friends spoke of how dejected he became, how he thought that his time in China might be up. In a sense, it was. It was perhaps the prospect of patching things up with Gu Kai Lai, or maybe finally getting that money, that led him to travel to Chongqing, right onto the Boer family's turf. He moved into the Lucky Holiday Hotel and met Gu Kai Lai for dinner. What happened next is hazy. The crime was originally covered up by that trickster of a police chief, Wang Li Jun. Neil Hayward's body was quickly cremated. Cops were paid off. Hayward died of overconsumption of alcohol, they said. But in fact, he was murdered. Wang was willing to do the cover-up for Bo and Gu, but other forces in Beijing smelled an opportunity to take down the charismatic leadership hopeful Bo Shilai. They started breathing down Wang's neck, and he was feeling the heat. He went to Bo to explain that an investigation had begun into their family. Although this could have been Wang looking for protection, saying that if Bo didn't look after him, he'd spill the beans. Either way, Bo struck Wang. With the relations between the erstwhile allies Bo and Wang mortally damaged, Wang was freaked out enough to make the unlikely decision to seek refuge at the U.S. consulate in Chongqing. But they took one look at his record, said "No way, Jose," and turned him over to Beijing, right into the arms of Xi Jinping and that podgy grin he always has. Wang, the chief of police, became chief rat, which shortened his sentence for corruption to fifteen years. The power couple were less fortunate. In the official version of events, back at the Lucky Holiday Hotel on that fateful night, Gu Kailai waited for Neil Hayward to pass out from the booze, dripped poison into his mouth, killing him dead. According to court records, this was Gu's confession. But Chinese courts are not particularly known for pursuing the truth. The verdict is generally known before the trial even begins. Ironically, as a lawyer, Gu Kailai herself had castigated American justice, defending Chinese justice by comparison. But for all the faults of justice systems in democratic countries, Gu must have known that whether she did it or didn't do it, once she was in handcuffs, she did it. In the case of Bo and Gu. There were just too many interests at stake for us to be able to make a reasonable conclusion about just how just the justice was, as the sentences were handed down. It's unlikely that this murder didn't work in someone's favour, someone who perhaps didn't want the ambitious Mister Boer in the running for leadership, or perhaps they knew that Hayward was a spy and someone got to him, pinned it on the Boer family, or maybe it was a terrible accident, but it looked so bad that they tried to cover it up. We'll probably never know. What we do know is that relationships, Guangxi, is the oil that makes the engine of China tick over, even at the highest levels. And when these relationships break down, it can be quite a mess. Bo Shilai was found guilty of abusing his position of power and accepting bribes, and sentenced to life imprisonment. Gu Kailai admitted the murder and got a suspended death sentence. Although after a few years, this was commuted to life in prison. Xi Jinping rose to become paramount leader, 
and began implementing a wide-ranging anti-corruption drive, sweeping up anyone else who might cause trouble. With hierarchy being so important in Chinese culture, competition to get on top starts early. The kids in my school, mostly starting to learn English at age seven, were very privileged compared to the vast majority of Chinese youngsters. But years behind those in Shanghai and other big cities, where babies are thrown into classes with foreign teachers, with little more than a nappy and the ability to cry. Learning is repetitive and time-consuming, and some will learn more and better and faster than others. But all learn the importance of success, the shame of failure. As the years go by, the pressures of examinations claim many lives through suicide. In 2021, the government in Beijing decided to tackle this culture of runaway stress by banning private tutors and foreign online English tuition, a move that was welcomed by those who feel the harm of all that pressure. But then the loopholes began to be explored, and people started hiring nannies, nannies with PhDs. The world of work is hardly easier. With such competition, you have to have something to claw yourself up from the ocean of regular workers. Something to inch yourself ahead of the others, because if you don't make it, as Penny would say, you're cleaning in the toilet, Mister. Having climbed the ladder, the cunning that got you there is finally allowed to be released in all its divisive, manipulative, and mean glory, cascading back down the ladder like the ethical diarrhea that it is. Treating your more lowly counterparts with indifference or disdain is, as one Shanghainese friend later told me. Built into the hierarchical structure of society, this is why interactions with bus drivers, ticket sellers, and Walmart workers, i.e., services, rarely more than transactional. Your change is thrown onto the counter without a word. Your indifference reflected right back at you. Seeing the Chinese teachers return from meetings with furrowed brows and lengthy to-do lists of impossible targets, one only wonders how they put up with it. I was told how a female teacher once made a mistake, and two years later she was still targeted by the management in subtle, relentlessly dispiriting attacks. Of course, you might say this is free market China. They can always leave and work in a public school, or make clothes, or wait tables, or something. They'd have to give up hope of a decent career or salary, sacrifice the esteem that comes with their current job, probably damage their child's opportunity for a decent education, condemning them to be treated like shit in their job too. But it's an option. The management know that even here in wealthy Jiangsu, people are trapped, and hence squeeze every ounce of labor from them. They never thank them for it. Their subordinates seem to think this is only natural. One Saturday, the opportunity arose for teachers all across Jiangsu to visit other schools and take tests, which may get them new jobs. The cradle of elites, upon hearing of this news, invited all the Chinese teachers on their staff for a trip to a museum. The teachers could not refuse this kind offer. Recruitment day came. Everyone jollied off to the museum, and promptly went back to work. Another teacher who joined Penny's department in grade seven had supplied her university certificate to the school with her application for the job. Three months later, they still had it, meaning she couldn't quit even if she wanted to, and she did want to. I kept a close watch on my passport to prevent such thing happening to me. But the flip side of this hard-nosed treatment of the Chinese workers is the softly, softly treatment of the Western workers, who are much more able to leave at any time if they so choose. If they do up and leave, 
which happens all across the country. It's a damning indictment on the reputation of the school. A mienza faux pas. A slap in the face. A midnight run, as it's termed on foreign teacher message boards online, also creates a problem for the fleeing teacher. Without certain release documents, they'll struggle to legally find a new job. Still, embittered teachers take the risk and do a runner from time to time. The cradle knows it could happen, and so we get bikes and big apartments and Christmas dinners. We were privileged, but we weren't delusional. The management had it in for everyone. The Chinese and foreign staff just experienced it differently. When compared to the near-constant whining of the foreign teachers, the stoicism of the Chinese teachers was remarkable. They rarely let their smiles slip, and were always friendly and engaging and helpful. Of course, they were helpful to the management too, as they were tasked to report on what we said. But they shared their hopes with me about travelling the world and experiencing a life beyond the insulated village that we lived in. A world beyond the school gates. A good friend of mine from Shanghai was telling me once about how hard it was to be an employee there, in an office job in Shanghai. She recently quit that job and her friend was doing the same. Both were too weak, she said and they got thrown around by their superiors. She said, I don't understand why, but it seems like people here have no choice but to be in battles. When she told me this, another friend came immediately to mind. My friend Tom had also taught English in China, way out in the countryside. He came away from it with the distinct feeling that the need to, for lack of a better term, survive, had led him into making ethical compromises. He felt that he'd become more ruthless, more willing to lie, to turn a blind eye to bad things he witnessed. It's an uncomfortable conclusion to draw, that there's something corrupting in Chinese culture. I don't know if that's the case. And I've met firsthand some of the finest people I can think of in China. Generous, open-minded and curious individuals. But in a recent episode, you might recall, I talked about those with, quote, straight hearts and quick mouths, and those who don't fit the mold, do not tend to have an easy ride. The secret to survival in China is learning to work within the system. So let's talk to Tom, an English teacher who spent his time in the proper Chinese countryside. At the end of the day, I was in Chongshu, near prosperous Suzhou, only a few hours from Shanghai. To get a taste of the really cutthroat life, you have to be out in the sticks. So tune in next time for a conversation with Tom, the ESL teacher. Is coming in for a chat about the sheep and the wolves of Hunan.